Hi, I'm Sonia Jean Killebrew, and this is my oral history project, Black America and COVID. I started this project during Black History Month of 2022 because I wanted to provide a platform for Black Americans to share their stories about living, working, or going to school during the COVID-19 pandemic. I also wanted to provide a space for people to memorialize someone who is Black American who sadly lost their life to COVID-19 or during the pandemic. I was inspired by the work of anthropologist and author Zoe Neal Hurston to record the experiences of Black Americans in their own voices. My goal is to get my recordings into museums such as the Smithsonian of African American History and Culture. I'll share a little bit about me and my family Black history. I'm a Black American. I'm a writer and a teacher. My dad was African American and Indigenous American. My mom is Jamaican American. I'm actually a fourth generation teacher. My mom is a retired teacher in New York City. My grandmother was a teacher in, for 20 years in Jamaica and then for 20 years in New York City. And my great-grandmother, who was the daughter of an Irish woman and a Black man in Jamaica, she was a teacher until she got married. And then when she got married, she stopped working because it was considered um, inappropriate for women to work when they got married in the late 1800s. And ironically, my mother began teaching after she got married, which was in the late, late 1900s. So I'm really excited today to speak with my friend who I met in my very first internship at Citibank when we were in high school. And I was just say, I walked into the cafeteria at Citibank and I saw this, well, at the time we were young adults, this, this black young adult in denim overalls. And I remember thinking, who is this confident person in this corporate setting wearing denim overalls? And we've been friends ever since. So I'm so excited. Please introduce yourself, tell us your name and how you identify. Oh, this is so great. Um, my name is Arisa White. I am Black, African American, Caribbean descent, um, Geechee origins as well. Um, I'm a poet and educator, and I'm now residing in Maine, even though I was born and raised in Brooklyn, uh, big up at Stuy. <laughs> um, and it's so great to be um, a part of this, this project, Sonia. And I can't believe that I was like, I was actually wearing denim coveralls or overalls or whatever it was. That's great. I don't remember that. <laughs> I guess this is also why we have community, because that's a part of memory, right? It's the things you forget are also remembered by those around you. Thank you. And can you share some stories about what it was like for you to live and work in 2020 and 2021? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> It was, I mean, one of the things is that I was living uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, Oakland, California for about 12 years. And in 2018, I then moved to Maine. And so 
pretty much like from 2018 until now, it, it has been trying to kind of learn this community, get used to it. There's geographical sprawls, so needing to drive, you know, more places than I am used to as someone who grew up in New York City and then later lived in the Bay Area. So um, the experience was one that was quite interesting because I was in a place that I didn't really know people. And, um, and so it was this combination of like isolation and fear. <laughs> um, and when the whole pandemic uh, kind of started, like, what was it? It was like 2020. So, so like around this time, actually, like March um, 2020, I was actually in uh, San Antonio, Texas for a writer's conference. And then that's when everything just started to kind of like crumble, it felt like. People weren't showing up for their panels. Some folks were turning around. It was... It was just like, where am I in this apocalypse? And then flew back home and then everything just started to shut down. Um, the college where I, where I work essentially basically told the students to pack up. We're closing up the campus and we're going to figure it out from there. We're going to sort of teach online. And a lot of like everyone was just, you know, in a panic. I was in a panic. Um, my, you know, my wife was also in California at the time too. So it was just like, come home, get home. We don't know like what's going on. So, um, so basically I, in many ways felt prepared to transition to remote learning be, because for a number of years, I, number one, I worked as a dance, like editorial manager for a dance magazine and I was doing that remotely. I was also teaching um, adjunct teaching um, at a college that um, our courses were hybrid. So I would go on campus some days and then teach online using, you know, like um, what was it Blackboard or what was the other one that started Canvas? And so I felt prepared. Like in some ways, I'm like, I kind of got this. But the thing that I was concerned about was how, how to translate an online learning experience for students who are used to in-person instruction. And that felt like that was the more difficult thing. It's like we started in-person, you all are expecting in-person. Now we're in panic mode and we have this whole new like, you know, model that we have to like integrate into this whole process. So that was, that was just, that was really trying <laughs> like on the nerves actually. And one of the things that I recognized is that I had to let go of my lesson plans. My <laughs> learning objectives were no longer relevant because the objective at this point for me as an instructor was like how to still recognize the humanity of my students without trying to teach them something like how can we use this moment as an experience for learning about language 
about story, how story is created and then produced and mass marketed. Um, how do we learn about the contours of our fear? And so as a poetry teacher, professor, I use this moment to just really have you know, my students think about their interior lives to really grapple with these larger questions around humanity and community and care and life or death. Um, and, and I, and, and that helped me too, <laughs> more so than being like, we're going to learn a sonnet today. We're going to, what we're going to learn is how to pay attention and then how to think about those moments of turning our attention to take in new information and, you know, how to then, you know, just really thinking about life as a poetic form in a way. Um, and one of the things that I actually did was that I sent little notes to my students. I got their mailing addresses and I, like every other week, I would just send something in the mail. Um, I, I keep like a lot of stickers, a lot of postcards when I go to writers conferences. So I always have this like literary, like junk <laughs> that I'm always like, where can I send this to? So I did that as a way to kind of keep connection and just like a little bit of like, I'm, we're all in this together sort of feeling going. Um, so that was like 2020. So the kind of newness of it, I think had people, you know, people were just kind of coming together around it. But then once fall 2021, not, wait, that was, ah, times, I'm messing up with time. But when the fall of like fall 2020 and then spring 2021, there was this huge fatigue. Like it was, it was like, we were, yeah, it's like, I, I was so zoomed out. Everyone was just like, I'm not learning anything. I'm so stressed out. Um, yeah, that, those were the hardest. Those were the hardest semesters. Spring 2021, um, my, department was doing searches for new faculty members and on top of that with students breaking down like people at this point you know students were like family members are dying I too was like dealing with medical stuff at home and with my wife you know everyone was just sort of falling apart like everyone was falling apart and it was like uh, how do you how do you how do you hold everyone together in this, this kind of space? Um, but the fatigue was strong. And then I just remember, like, I can't do another meeting. I can't do another interview. And after like spring 2021, I, I just like cried after that semester was over. There was a week of just like being in the bed, like not wanting to get out just crying at the fact of like, um, like what is the world coming to? Just like all of this, like these existential questions, like what's my purpose? You know, just all of that started to hit. And then, you know, with, with the summer of 2020, 
and the whole Floyd stuff and Breonna Taylor and this whole like uprising with Black Lives Matter. And then this like additional pressure for like Black people and people of color to perform, you know, diversity and equity work culturally, artistically, intellectually. It was just like, I need a break, you know, I re I need something to break, you know. Um, and just these really deep questions about what am I doing and who am I and how do I fit into all of this, you know, where it was just a lot. It was so much, so much, Sonia. <laughs> I love, and I, I'm following Instagram and I remember you posting pictures of your students' projects. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that when you said like thinking about life as a poetic performance. Yeah, and, and I think during, especially during that time, I started to, especially with the poetry, I started to think about with my poetry classes and with the students in particular, like how can we take these poems and bring it to the community, you know? And I had my students think about taking some of their poems and finding ways to connect with other people. And, you know, some students decided that they were gonna write um, kind of short haiku-like poems and put them on hand sanitizers and put those hand sanitizers around a playground in their community. One student decided in thinking about, she was looking at bricks and um, steps as like poetic lines. And so she walked around her community putting um, poetic lines on steps and you know, word phrases and bricks so that, you know, it just gave people a moment to pause. And one student who was living in, who lives in Virginia, and he wasn't too far from a co Confederate memorial site, decided that he wanted to, he wanted to use like these different bricks and he broke them up and the bricks had phrases on them and he put them inside the cannons and he like, was kind of creating erasures of the memorial site by putting the bricks on top of other words so that you would read things differently. So this was his way of, you know, having poetry be a way to revision and uh, a site of historical trauma. Um, so this just was this way of making them realize that the poem isn't, like they're not in this class to get a grade. They're in this class to observe how language can be used to shift the way we are in relationship to a place and to each other. Wow, Arisa. And can we talk about you as a poet? I attended your book launch on Zoom for your book, your poetic memoir, Who's Your mm -hmm. Daddy? And I wanted you to talk about what it was like to have a, a book tour on Zoom as opposed to in real life. Yeah. <laughs> that, I think one of the biggest things was realizing that after, like after each reading, I would be so hyped up and then there was nobody around. <laughs> it was like, I'm like, oh my God, that was a great reading. And then I turn around to my wife and she's like, yeah, it's a great reading. And then I'm just like, what do we do now? Like, you know, let's have a drink or something like that. Like, it was just horrible in that respect. But um, yeah, just like missing, missing the contact in that way, because you spend all of this time working on a book 
right? Just giving, giving, giving to the solitary act. And one of the pleasures of producing is to share and then also to just receive what people received from your creative act. So I wasn't receiving that at all. And it just felt dull. Like I didn't really feel like I made a thing and I finished a thing and I was really sharing it. But on the other side of that, I was able to just do things that I wouldn't necessarily be able to do sort of physically. Like I, you know, uh, you know, one day I could be at Harvard and then the next day I'm at a bookstore in California. You know, it's just so the, the, like that kind of accessibility was exciting because then my family members could show up for readings. Oftentimes, you know, that wasn't possible for them. So there was this lo- this this greater access that happened. Um, I was able to do readings with um, folks that I know I wouldn't be able to do readings with just because of their time, you know, like Nikki Finney, um, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams Sensei. Like it was just these people who I loved and I've adored. And it's always been hard to just like schedule our time so that we can be in the same place doing something like this. So in that way, I felt like I reached different audiences. I was also um, the Bocas Lit Festival in uh, Trinidad I did uh, a, a reading for. So I just felt like I was able to reach more audiences in these different ways. Um, and that was pretty exciting. Uh, it was It was fun in that regard, but I did miss like the after reading mingling. <laughs> that brings me kind of to my next question. You're on sabbatical now and I want to know like, what was it like to travel to Florida? To, like, did you wear masks? Did you fly? Did you drive? Were people wearing masks while you were there? Just what was that like? It's, I mean, it's kind of, it's interesting. So, you know, okay. So pretty much I'm in Maine, so going to Florida is just traveling down the East Coast, you know. Um, So in Maine, it's pretty, for the most part, pretty chill in the area where I'm at in Augusta, which is central Maine. Um, So, and we're pretty spread out too. And that was kind of one of the pleasures, you know, even though Maine is new to me, don't know people, my neighbors were really kind. There was something about this moment where people were like out, you know, being like, do you want tomatoes from my garden? <laughs> you know, or these like, I have some extra eggplant seeds. Are you guys planting this summer for the spring this summer? So it was, so all of a sudden, like people were respectfully distant, but also tending to each other in these really interesting ways. And, um, and also because we're not so crowded in, like in a city, you can go for, in some ways, like you can go for days without seeing anyone. You can be maskless on the street and not interact with anyone. So I got to breathe fresh air and then looking at, you know, what was happening in California, you know, there was that that season of orange skies, you know, it was just like, oh my God, I'm so happy I'm not in California right now. And a lot of the lockdown and sheltering in place, you know, a lot of people are going star crazy because they couldn't go outside. So 
I had that privilege. I could go outside. I could be in nature. I could hike and, um, and feel safe in doing that. So main, you know, going, so we mostly, we drove, we just did a road trip, just felt like that would be safer and just more convenient as well. So kind of moving along the East coast. Um, so it's pretty much like you can tell, like you hit the sort of kind of tri-state area and everyone's like in mask, you know? Um, but then sort of interestingly, there would be, you know, on the doors, like everyone has to wear a mask. You go in with your mask and then no one's wearing a mask. <laughs> it's like, what's going on here? So, so me and the wife were in our mask and sort of following the rules. You start moving further down, you get out of the kind of, you know, DC area, Virginia, it is pretty much maskless at that point. Um, and and, you know, we're completely okay and we're fine with that. Florida was the same way. Um, just kind of beach vibe, <laughs> a lot of sunshine. Um, wherever there was kind of a mask requirement, like in the museums, we had a mask on. But for the most part, it was, it's like a different country, especially when I, you know, connect with folks back in California. Um just the rules, the mandates, um, the requirements of vaccination cards to go into restaurants. It's just this, such a different reality from, you know, what I was experiencing going from Maine to Florida. Wow. And can you also talk about the fact that you visited Sarah Nilherson's home in Gravesite? Because she's an inspiration to me. So, yeah. Um, it was, you know, so one of the, one of like my goals and sort of traveling to Florida is to visit some kind of like some of the coastal communities um, founded and founded by black um, people, mostly, you know, after enslavement. And so I just was leaving myself open to like what's on the African-American heritage trail. So we stopped also in Amelia Island, uh, America Beach, um, which during, you know, segregation times, um, America Beach was for black folks to just like go and have their leisure and not have to deal with um, the violence of white supremacy. And so I went to that space and then discovered, not discovered, but found out that Zora Neale Hurston was in Fort Pierce, uh, Florida. So we took a, a drive down there and there's like this whole kind of like um, these sort of markers that you would go around the, the community. And so we went to her house, which was sort of like almost like a kind of one bedroom studio concrete brick sort of thing and one of the things I was super excited about I mean during this whole time of the pandemic I've just been freaking out like I'm now in my 40s I've just been sort of really grappling with like old age you know I'm you know just like Who's like, who's going to take care of me when I'm older? Like, what do I need to do to set up for my care? Um, what is community care? What does that look like? Um, you know, how do we tend to people 
who, you know, don't necessarily have the, the traditional setup of like, um, marriage and, and kids, right. You're, you don't necessarily have this, this unit where you're expecting, um, your children to take care of you. And I, and I even posted this on Facebook and, and, and it, the conversation, like, I, I think I got like over like 69 comments and replies to this, but so many people have been grappling with this, like even parents who have neurodivergent children or children who have severe uh, disabilities where that isn't possible for them, right? Like, oh, my child's going to take care of me. And that's, and that's just not guaranteed anyhow. So I've just been really thinking about what does it look like to care for people? Um, and so when on the on this uh, Zora Neale Hurston Trail in Fort Pierce, um, it was stated that like this house was donated to uh, Zora Neale Hurston and she could live there rent free. So it was like a black doctor in the community built this home for her. And, it'll, and this is where she lived for the rest of her life, not necessarily having to worry about rent and about shelter. And I just thought that was incredible. Like it just opened my heart up and in these amazing ways. And I haven't read the, you know, the biography about Zora's life and all of those details, but I, you know, I, what I heard sort of growing up um, is that, and, and when I say growing up, it's more so like as a graduate student, as a, as a reader, as a writer, um, growing in this, in this literary field, um, that Zora Neale Hurston died poor, you know, like, but when you say something like that, you think she's alone, like she had no one, like there was like no community there to help even in these small ways and something about knowing that along with this narrative of her dying poor there was also community members caring for her and providing the resources that they could to help her live as long as she could live and so that just that just opened my heart in in ways it it, it shifted this this notion of like you, you know, you will die alone or like no one will care for you because you don't have kids and a traditional family and because you're an artist. And, and it was like the universe was providing this example of like, but no, this is what it could look like. You know, this is what care also looks like. Um, and then, yeah, it was just, and then I went to her gravesite and, um, and then you also, read this the little information about how Alice Walker um put a tombstone on it and then once again thinking about that collective care about how even if you have been disappeared in some way um your memory is still there and and people who care will find a way to honor and activate that memory in the now um and so I just, and you know, so my little afternoon kind of going around to these sites, it was, it was just a revision in a, a kind of sad nihilistic story that has been looping during this pandemic for me. It was like, no, 
we can find other ways to tend to each other. Um, and then there was also this artist by the name of, I may be getting his name wrong, but A.E. Bacchus. And he was a visual artist and he helped kind of create this whole community of visual artists known as the highwaymen. White artists taught his skill to black artists during a time of segregation. And these artists, you know, wind up, you know, creating culture and, and reimagining and showing what the landscape of Florida looks like through their eyes. And also just dismantling the fact that like, um, that the realism that black folks depict doesn't necessarily mean our annihilation. It also means our, you know, future, our lands, our way of seeing land or imagining land. And so just even encountering this artist and his way of giving and extending his, his creativity to others, it was just this, yeah, it just really allowed me to, to expand my sense of purpose and my sense of place amongst people. And it's not about just productivity or creating the same social arrangements that in many ways don't benefit us, but trying to imagine different social arrangements that still tend to our needs and um, still allow us to create and make beautiful things as well. I love that. I've also been thinking about retirement. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> and my last question, if there's anyone who would, you would like to memorialize who sadly lost their life, during the pandemic? Yes, um, my cousin, uh, Sonia Biggs. Um, yeah, in June of 2020, passed away. And that was, that was big because particularly that family, that part of my family has, oh, it's just so, it's like mind blowing when, I feel through and look at my family now and family past, and we've lost someone or some or a bunch of people or a few people to like almost every major kind of tragedy, especially if it's like was particular to the black community, you know, like every one of them, you know, the AIDS epidemic, we have this, you know, and it's, so yeah, so that it was just really heartbreaking and heartbreaking to see that, you know, it just feels like every 20 years, a part of my family gets sucked into the madness that's happening in the world. Um, then also a few Kaveh Kahnem poets have passed as well. Venus Thrash, um, Camilla Aisha Moon, um, they passed during this time as well. And then also Bell Hooks, um, we lost her during this time. And, and I say that too, because specifically thinking about Bell, because I'm working on a new project that takes in 
a lot of her books and her teachings and her just like, you know, fierce thinking. So that was, so now that this project feels like it's, it's, um, it's memorializing all of the amazingness that she has offered us. Um, yeah, those folks and many more, but Thank those you. are, they, they are close. They are close to the heart right now. Yeah, I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. I hope that in talking about them, their memory will live on in, in the archives. Yeah, definitely. Anything else you'd like to share before we end? Uh, that, I mean, this is it. I hope, I mean, I hope this, I also hope this moment doesn't, I think what I'm most frightened by is this moment of, like in a like an apartheid system being created between the vac like the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, and um, I just you know I hope that we recognize the ways in which we may be playing into something larger and bigger that can create some huge divides between people and some significant scary ways and I'm feeling it as someone you know who has medical exemption and can't have the vaccine that I am noticing the ways in which I'm not being allowed into spaces nor um, being able to present negative tests as as a way to get into the space um, and also having organizations say they don't discriminate, but when confronted with someone like me, you feel that discrimination incredible, like how incredible and terrible it is. Um, so this is what I am, I am most worried about um, as we move forward and out of this pandemic. And um, in the ways in which we become complacent and complicit and considering our history I just think we need to be very attentive to the ways such mechanisms like this create another tiered system. And in that tiered system, the kind of violence that we allow to happen to that group of people that we say are not something or blah, 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 right? We already, already know like what history has taught us around that. So. That's when I'm, I want us to just be really, really, because if we talk about body autonomy, um, we see it with like reproductive rights. I mean, it's just, I, I just really need us all to just be really like, what are we willing to give up? And, and is it, do you just want to get on a plane and be able to eat in a restaurant? That's you know what I mean? It's like, what are we giving up when each time we consent to things around this, knowing that other people aren't allowed or can have access around such privileges? Now it's becoming like a privilege to be able to go into a restaurant or go to the opera or something. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know, but it just doesn't feel right. Thank you. I hadn't thought about that perspective, but right, it, it does feel like an informal apartheid system mm -hmm. arising under the vaccinated, non-vaccinated. 
status. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's been really trippy too, especially trying to kind of do resonancies or, but what's been strange is kind of seeing the shift where, you know, one, like, you know, a residency will say something like, oh, in order to attend, you must show a negative test regardless of your vaccination status. We need to see negative tests and, you know, we'll, request that you test every other week or something like that, right? So for me, that feels more about health because everyone has sort of proven CDC that the vaccinated can still spread and give, you know, even, you know, people I know who've been vaccinated and boosted and have still gotten some variant of COVID find themselves in this place of being completely surprised that they got it. And then getting getting some form of COVID, Delta or Omicron or whatever, they then are like, oh my God, I thought I was protected because I had the vaccine. And then they're like spreading it to their family members and like, you know, compromising the health of family members who can't get vaccinated. So knowing that, like, you know, there would be places where in the beginning it was like, we need tests. And then all of a sudden it changes to, we just need you to be vaccinated in order to be in the space. Okay. (laughs) What is that? I mean, yeah. yeah. So I just find, I just kind of find myself just being like, but you still know that things can be caught and spread even though you're vaccinated. Like it's, So it's just those realities that I'm hitting up against and I can feel the the things that don't quite make sense with it all, you know? Because if it's about health, we need to test and we need to require that from people. Thank you. And then now, yeah. And yeah, and then now becomes the thing of like, tests are too expensive. So it becomes a, a whole other kind of economic financial thing now. And then... If you don't have the economics, then what? That's true, because I remember um, when Biden was saying, oh, family members can sign up to get the tests. And I have a friend, he has three children and his mm-hmm. wife. He was like, so we only get four, which one of us in our family doesn't get a test, right? So exactly. Like the government saying, oh, we're providing you this free access, but you're not like, um, what's the saying? Equity is not equality or equity. Mm -hmm. It's so true. It's not, it's like, and I think that's the hardest thing for people to realize because we're so binary and our thinking, our laws are so binary and it's thinking. And it's like, everyone can't get the same portion of a thing because you're either physically tinier and I'm just like 500 more pounds more than you. I like, you can't feed us to say the same thing and say we're, we're fed, you know, you can't blanketly be like unvaccinated, vaccinated. You can't, you can't when there are people in the middle, like, like where's the space for that? Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Arisa. I still Thank have a, um, the business card that you made years ago. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
Oh my god, that's so that see so long time ago. Was that like in the 90s or something? Yes, that's so true. <laughs> you were still you were such a serious poet, even when you were a teenager. <laughs> that is <laughs> that's great. Yeah. I think it said you Arisa White blossoming soul is that familiar oh my god that is so great yeah. that is <laughs> yeah that is excellent yeah I so like I was going through stuff and I I have like this letter you sent me I have like so many little fun things like that yeah oh we'll have to meet up in real life uh one day <laughs> yes definitely and um I'm actually gonna be in New York for a few days so oh. I'll, I'll I'll hit you up yeah thank you so I, I'll just close the interview and say thank you so much for your time and sharing your voice it's so important that we hear for me to hear every Black American's experience during the pandemic and thank you so much. I'm Sonia Jean Kilbrew, and this is my oral history project, Black America and COVID.